This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Only two more sleeps, that is, if you haven't voted already. million people, 10% of voters have cast their ballots, and I'm not sure how that may or may not affect the ultimate outcome. The word is that it now comes down to the grand, the ground game, getting the vote out, and what happens in the tight races. One of the themes throughout has been the battle for second place between the Liberals and the NDP. The material that I've been seeing the last few days says that the NDP will maintain official opposition status while the Liberals may get more of the popular vote. Federally, A day after a chorus of demands to drop COVID protocols at the airport to try to clear the massive congestion and backlogs there, well, the government's announced they are extending all border restrictions until June 30th. We will also be talking about that in the second half of the program. So people, what do you think? And of course, there is the new gun control legislation the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And right now, I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Michael Diamond, Principal of Upstream Strategy Group, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP. Thanks, guys. Welcome. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Nice to be here again. Michael. Michael, Michael is the uh, non-recovering politician, and he's actually at PC campaign headquarters today. Uh, so, Michael, um, most of the polls show Doug Ford and your party po- uh, coasting. Well, look, uh, you know, the, the polls are uh, not not really what's going to drive our uh, motivation for the next uh, couple of days. So there's obviously we're really proud. Unlike the Liberals, we're running 124 candidates and we have 124 uh, local campaigns that are uh, going to be working as hard as if we had a, uh, a deficit in those polls. So, uh, you know, the, the polls are uh, uh, certainly encouraging, but uh, the work continues regardless. Charles, uh, how do you think your guy's doing? Uh, it's going to be a tough, obviously. I mean, the internal polls, everybody's polls are indicating a, a, a good majority now for Doug Ford. The negative ads have been working, right? And they've been out there in full force. Um, the opposition has been weak um, over the course of the years, not just in this campaign. And the conservatives have done a good job of that. In certainly when we ran last time, they came at us hard on, on hydro weights, on, um, on the fiscal matters, on issues around, you know, uh, the carbon pricing, all of which they haven't undone, right? In fact, it's gotten worse since then, but we have not been able to hold them to account in an effective way. Um, but the popular vote indicates that the Liberals are in second place, but I don't see the seat count uh, possibly running in their favor, unfortunately. Uh, but we'll see. I'm certainly concerned about certain ridings in the 905 where it's really tight and it's where the Conservatives seem to be having an edge still. Uh, but We'll we'll know on Election Day a lot of advanced votes, a lot more than in the previous election, which may be a good thing for some who are hoping for a change. But obviously, uh, all indications show for a majority again. And uh, will Stephen Del Duca win his own riding? Well, uh, you know, Michael's in the war room. He probably knows better than most. Uh, It is is tough, obviously, from what I'm hearing. Uh, But uh, he's a leader. There may be a, a, a support for him as a result, similar to what happened with Kathleen Wynne in her riding. Um, Michael, will Stephen Del Duca win his riding, or will your guy do it? Look, what I'll say is we just have to look at Mr. Del Duca's campaign uh, tactics and schedule over the last few weeks to know that he's certainly very worried about Von Woodbridge, the amount of Facebook advertising the Liberal Party of Ontario has poured into Von Woodbridge, the amount of uh, 
uh, discussed uh, of stops he's made there. You know, it's, it is unusual for a leader to lose their seat in Ontario. The last one to do that was actually defeated by Kathleen Wynne and John Tory uh, in 2007. So not something that's common, but I think uh, uh, it's uh, more likely than Mr. Del Duca would like to uh, have it be at this point. Howard Hampton, uh, earlier in the campaign, you know, the word was that the NDP was in third place uh, and uh, would not come back as the official opposition. But that seems to have turned around, at least according to the polls. Well, I, I think here's the reality of the, that we see facing where you have incumbent candidates it's very difficult uh, to defeat them in an election like this where no party seems to have a huge wave. Uh, When you're an incumbent candidate, you have advantages. And New Democrats have a number of incumbent candidates who have worked very hard over the last four years, and they've established a record for themselves above and beyond uh, what the party uh, may have done. And, And so where you don't have a huge wave where all kinds of boats are swept out and new boats are swept in, uh, incumbent candidates will have an advantage. And I think that's the advantage New Democrats have always had going into this election. Uh, And I think we continue to show it. And I think uh, the NDP campaign, especially in the last couple of weeks, has has gone rather well. So I I, I think... uh, especially in incumbent ridings. New Democrats will be working very, very hard uh, to get voters out uh, to make that incumbent advantage a reality at the polls. Uh, You know, um, the word is that one of your star candidates, a former city councillor or outgoing city councillor, Kristen Wong-Tam, might not get her seat here in downtown Toronto. I would not bet against her. Uh, other people have bet against her in the past and have uh, regretted it. I, I think what you have to recognize is she, uh, besides having a, a following as a political person, she has following as an individual. Uh, and in that part of Toronto, I think uh, you're going to find it will stand her in good stead this time as it has many times in the past. Okay, well, I guess it won't be that long before we see. Michael, uh, Doug Ford has come under fire, mostly from people in my business, for this incumbents campaign. He's not doing one-on-one interviews. He, uh, Other than one of the debates, he didn't stay for Q&As. He's kind of uh, making announcements or quasi-announcements and, and uh, you know, running off. And he's got a great jingle. So... Um, is that a portent of how he might govern in his second term? Oh, look, I, I mean, I'll agree with you that it's a great jingle. Uh, but I think, you know, Doug, Doug Ford's been out nearly every day and been taking questions from uh, journalists that most often. And yesterday I uh, did it in both Ottawa and uh, and down uh, down in Windsor. So he certainly, I think, you know, someone who uh, many members of the gallery have his personal cell phone and uh, talk to him uh, uh, directly. So I, I, I just don't, uh, I, I personally don't think it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, there there is a, a lack of, uh, uh, access there. I think he's uh, highly accessible to both voters and uh, members of the gallery, which is important, but uh, definitely agree it's a good jingle. <laughs> definitely agree it's a good jingle. And as our David Kravitz, who is a former ad man, pointed out, he's right at the beginning, he said, you notice he's the only one with a jingle. <laughs> we'll see how the jingle factor plays out. Uh, th- the thing that I guess a lot of us here found disappointing in the whole thing uh, was just that, you know, people say healthcare is at the top of the agenda, but it, it is, did not become anywhere near a ballot question, Charles. And why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, healthcare and education are, are you know, some of the major planks of the, the budget. Neither of which are taking, uh, um, getting the same amount of attention that normally would be the case. And both of them, they have to defend their record in terms of what has happened over the last four years. And it's been not too good. <laughs> and yet it's not coming across. And that's what I meant the opposition has been kind of weak in this respect. 
I know when we were there, they came at us hard on, on a number of fronts, including the fiscal matters, which, which was sensitive to me. And even Michael tweeted today about Chef Sousa, which I had never seen before. And I think <laughs> I'm flattered by it. But it, what has happened... What do you mean? Has, I, I missed that tweet, Chef. Are you cooking? Oh, well, I, I, they, they, they called me Chef Sousa during my budget. And uh, I oh, even had a bottle head and, and, and so forth. I oh, found cooking very, the very numbers. Flattering. Okay. Um, but it was all them trying to come at you for not being responsible. And yet, since then, it's gotten worse. The rating agencies, the FAO, even prior to the pandemic, has downgraded them. There was a number of things that have happened that have not been good, and we haven't called them out on it. And to Doug Ford's credit, uh, he's playing it safe. He's a front runner. He's not even having his candidates debate uh, with others. Who, they don't want to get themselves, uh, you know, they don't want to slip up, and I get that. But health care is a huge issue. Long-term care is a huge issue. Things that have happened during COVID highlighted some of the shortcomings of every government and uh they're getting a pass and and that's just the realities of politics i guess as it stands but they've done an effective job of skirting those issues well you know what i i think a, a psychological explanation might be more to the point people are tired yeah and uh those things you know especially long-term care it's hard to look at if I could just uh, interject, I mean, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, part of the reason that the Liberals are ignoring the long-term care issue during this election is, you know, Doug Ford's actually getting shovels in the ground and has awarded, uh, awarded new spaces and new beds, which are desperately needed. Uh, and, you know, the Liberals in their time of government built uh, 600, uh, only 600 spaces. I mean, I think it's quite logical that Mr. Del Duca doesn't want some of these issues to be at the forefront. No, he uh, actually just, talked about it more, Michael, and, and uh, one of the interesting aspects I find about the PC campaign is they seem to be very focused on fighting the previous government that you defeated. I mean, Kathleen Wynne is, uh, it figures very prominently in your ads. Uh, she's been out uh, knocking on doors quite a bit for uh, liberal candidates. And I think, you know, the best uh, prediction uh, for uh, future behavior is uh, past conduct. So I think, you know, Ontarians, uh, it certainly wasn't that long ago uh, that you know, the Liberals built six, only 600 long-term care spaces, which left us uh, greatly unprepared for COVID. So I think, you know, uh, I definitely agree with Charles. Uh, there's been uh, multiple uh, uh, errors uh, from multiple governments going back, you know, uh, well before I was even born on some of these issues. But I think that is one of the reasons that uh, uh, there is, is, is looking to the past on this, because uh, it's uh, definitely a key indication for the future. Um, and Howard... Why do you think, I mean, Andrea Horvath is considered the most reliable on health care, but it, it just didn't seem to punch through this time. Well, I, I, I think here's the reality, uh, not only for Ontario, but I also think uh, across the country. We are, we are, the world is too busy right now. You have the events happening in Ukraine. You uh, have uh, events happening in the United States, and some of them are horrific uh, in terms of of innocent children being murdered in in great numbers. You have uh, all of the concerns about uh, inflation. Uh, You have people who cannot afford to buy a home. You have people who cannot afford rent. I've canvassed in communities where people say, after I pay the hydro bill, after I pay the grocery bill, and after I pay the gasoline bill for my car, there's nothing left. So I think for most people, the world is just too busy right now to focus on a particular issue. And I, and I think this has worked, uh, ironically, to the advantage of the Ford government. I, I mean, for most people in Ontario today, life is not as good as it was four years ago. Think about the cost of housing. Think about the cost of rent. Think about the cost of gasoline, the cost of food. Think about health care. Well, the world is not as good a place as it was four years ago. But because the world is so busy, there are so many things happening, people have not been able to focus on and say to themselves, hey, wait a minute, this guy's trying to tell me that, you know, he's done a great job. Well, why, why are things so difficult now? But in a very busy world where you have so many things happening that deflect attention away from one or two or three issues, that's actually worked to the advantage of the Ford government. And I think it's worked to the advantage of some other governments, too. 
Um, you mentioned the massacre of the children, and I want to bring something up. So uh, the federal government unveiled this new gun legislation yesterday. I have a, a, a bone to pick with a lot of my colleagues in the media who cover this as though it is a local event. And yes, we have had on occasion mass shootings. They're terrible. But the situation is not the same as it is in the United States. And, you know, I almost wonder, is the timing of this legislation because of the two mass shootings in the last less than two weeks? If I can jump in, I I, I beg to differ with you. Um, We have had a a mass shooting in Canada. Yeah, uh, ah, yes. And it was horrific. Um, And we do have serious problems with uh, illegal firearms in the country. And we have serious problems with guns that are, have nothing to do with hunting or anything like that, that were designed for the purpose of killing people. And I'm talking about assault rifles. We have these problems in Canada. I, I think the announcement of the legislation uh, in the aftermath of what happened at the school in Texas is not an accident. I, I think it was announced in conjunction with that in the hopes that it would get people's attention. But there is a very real problem in Canada. And, and if I may, I live in a border community. And in the spring and summer, we have literally tens of thousands of Americans who come across the border because they want to fish, they want to canoe, they want to hunt. And it's, it's a standing joke in my community that you'll have an SUV pull up at Canada Customs, and there'll be four people in the SUV, and we're all going fishing. And the customs officer will ask, you know that handguns are illegal in Canada. Do you have a handgun? No, no handguns. Would you mind opening the glove compartment? Open the glove compartment. What's that? Oh, that must be my, my, my wife's gun. Oh, I didn't know she was here. Uh, do you mind if you open the back of the SUV? What's that at the bottom there? Oh, it's another, though, that, that must be my wife's other gun. You mind getting out of the SUV while we have a further look? What's this under the seat? Oh, maybe, oh, gee, I don't, didn't know that was there. Well, it's a, it's a standing joke that you'll find many times in one vehicle, three handguns. And, and not all of those handguns go back to the United States when the trip is over. Well, exactly. But the, what, what the criticism of the legislation is that it's not necessarily going to deal with illegal guns coming in from the United States. But uh, Charles, what do you think? Do you think that maybe we, you know, look at what's happening there too much as, as if it's almost happening here? Well, the trends are, are worsening. I mean, we've had some, obviously, uh, very unfortunate circumstances in mosques and so forth. It's uh, yeah. It happened in Canada. Not to the same extent, obviously, but I get it. We're going after handguns and assault uh, weapons. And other jurisdictions around the world that have had greater restrictions have substantively less cases. I mean, the United States had over 115 cases last year. All of Europe, including Canada, was less than 50. So some countries were like three or four or eight or so forth. And Canada has had its, its, its share as well, and it's rising. But the notion of going after assault weapons and handguns, I mean, and Trudeau is saying he's not going after existing owners, he's going after uh, activities thereafter. So you no longer can buy and sell, you can't transport and all those things. I mean, of course, it's going to affect the existing owners who are legitimate and have taken precautions to keep them hidden. But if I just look at what's happening in other parts of the world where they are more strict, they have less cases. And that's the bottom line to all this. Well, yeah. You, you, I mean, talk, you it, talk to a family, you talk to parents who were gun owners, and they were there fighting for their for their amendment, their rights to, to hold a gun, are now saddened by what's happened to their own kids. And that's the problem. Well, I, I, think, I think the problem with the legislation, or what's been introduced, is uh, the buyback of assault rifles, which is uh, a gun amnesty, is a good idea. Uh, uh, putting some restrictions on handguns is a good idea. And let's be clear, it's, it's not somebody taking a hunting rifle and going on a, a shooting spree. Um, the, the clip size in most hunting rifles wouldn't allow you to go on a, a hunting spree, uh, etc. So 
what we're really dealing with here are two problems. Assault rifles that were allowed to come into Canada one way or another, or you were allowed to purchase them in Canada one way or another at a certain time. Uh, the buyback makes sense. But the I think the announcement about restrictions on handguns uh, is superfluous at best. The real issue with handguns, and we saw this in terms of the very sad situation that happened in Nova Scotia, is most of the firearms that the gentleman had, that the fellow had, came from the United States and came in illegally. And unless and until Canada gets more aggressive in dealing with illegal handguns coming across the border, um, this problem is going to continue. Michael, and, uh, let's let's you hear know, your take on it. Uh, lots to add first. You know, I'm glad to hear Howard talk about Kenora. I practically grew up there, so I'm now feeling a bit homesick. But uh, I don't think the Americanization of the gun debate in Canada is helpful uh, for anyone. So I actually, you know, I can almost draw a line through what Howard said and agree with all, almost all, all of it. That uh, you know, the problem here is illegal firearms being used uh, illegally. So that will not be addressed by uh, what the Prime Minister uh, is setting out to accomplish. What we need to do is really uh, increase the uh, powers for both the search and seizure for Canada Post. Uh, we need to do it for border agents. We need to provide them the ability to, uh, to to confiscate, to take vehicles, to question, uh, and make sure that we stop the flow of illegal guns into this country, which are then going to be used uh, illegally. So I think, you know, uh, what was announced yesterday was almost like taking a bath uh, to a, uh, a, a, a bath to a fruit fly. We need to be much more strategic to actually weed out the problem here. Okay, I've got a couple of uh, callers who want to talk about gun control. Uh, Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, we need stiffer punishment for crimes. Drivers under the influence of alcohol and drug is the same as using a gun. Those who commit these crimes should have years added on for each precious life taken. Okay, thanks, Sita. Let's thanks. go to Jerry in Scarborough. Hello, Jerry. Listening, what's going on? Hello. Oh, I don't know what happened there. We lost Jerry, um, but I'm glad he was listening to what's going on. Uh, Michael, what do you make of the timing of the announcement yesterday? Do you think it was tied to what's going on in the United States? Oh, oh undoubtedly, and I actually agree with uh, your opening comments on the segment that it was uh, using the. Terrible, terrible tragedies, which uh, uh, everyone uh, who is good and decent would have to uh, uh, look at these things just absolute uh, atrocities. Uh, but uh, you know, they're they're not something. Thankfully, that uh, is is something that is uh, a part of. Our, our life here in Canada, and of course what happened in Nova Scotia uh, just over two years ago was awful. We have to make sure that we have uh, laws and measures in place to address that, but uh, using these tragedies to Americanize the uh, firearms debate in Canada is not helpful for public discourse, and it's not helpful for public safety. Howard, uh, do you agree with giving border agents um, more power to deal with it? Would that solve it? I mean, you know, right now we have we have a problem with border agents, you know, just getting people through the airport. It, it, it's not just a question of giving border agents uh, more power. Anybody who's been, for example, at uh, one of the major airports, uh, when an international flight arrives, say, in Montreal or Toronto, and a, uh, a, a border security officer brings out a small dog that moves from suitcase to suitcase, sniffing the contents. And you watch uh, some of the passengers uh, immediately start to get nervous. Uh, dogs can be trained to sniff out drugs. They can be trained to sniff out chemicals. And they can be trained to sniff out firearms, particularly if the firearm has been fired. And I don't, for the life of me, don't understand why at most border crossings, uh, border control officers don't have that at their disposal 24 hours a day. The, the major problem we have, we, we, there, there are a number of sub-issues here when it comes to firearms. Assault rifles is one of them. But this, the major problem, I think, is this. We live next door to a country where you can get, you can walk into a... A gun show, which would be similar to going to, uh, you know, a, a carnival, and you could purchase a firearm, or uh, you can uh, you can purchase a firearm online. 
And those firearms, many of them handguns, come across the border into Canada every day as things stand now. So any government, if they're going to get serious about controlling illegal firearms or restricted firearms in Canada, has to deal with the major part of the problem, and that is at the border. And it's not just about giving border agents more power. The government, of whoever it is, has to put more resources, different resources, at border crossings if we're going to have any dent in this problem whatsoever. Okay. Uh we are heading down to the bottom of the hour. By the time we convene next week, we'll be talking about the results. So uh, can I be so bold to ask for some predictions, even w- with numbers, Charles? Oh, I was hoping you'd go to Michael first. Um, <laughs> listen, we, uh, I, the polling tells us what's happening, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that... Uh, you know, Del Duca can come into second place. It'd be a big win if he becomes official opposition. I'm really rooting for my local candidate, who's a wonderful person, and and uh, so I'm working hard for her. Um, and uh, well, listen, I'm hoping that uh, Doug Ford will take the mandate in a way that recognizes that he's only getting, you know, forty percent of the vote, three percent of the vote. I mean, more than half of the, the province will be voting out to a different degree. So, and that's always been the case. And he's actually done a pretty good job of of trying to relate with people. He's certainly become more centric uh, than some of his opponents or some of his past uh, colleagues, and I think he's filled that gap. And, you know, frankly, the Liberals attacked a bit too far to the left in this respect. But I am hopeful that they'll be able to make a, a strong opposition and keep everyone to account. Howard? I would be very, uh, uh, I would be very careful about making predictions about what's going to happen on Thursday. <laughs> This is going to boil down to riding, uh, you know, riding upon riding uh, battles. So you might have uh, places where a party racks up a huge victory, for example, in, in a rural riding. Uh, and, and so their percentage of the vote is very high. But in other ridings, they lose seats by very small margins. So I'd be very careful about uh, predicting an outcome. Um, I, I think... New Democrats have surged in the last week. I think you're, you're starting to see that. Uh, I think uh, the fact that the Democrats have some very strong incumbents, people who have worked hard, uh, uh, is going to work very well for New Democrats. Uh, and, and I also think uh, that uh, the fact that New Democrats enter this race with over 40 seats, uh, many people are going to look at that and say, uh, in, a, in a very uncertain election campaign where nobody has a big tide, I, I'm going to stick with what I know. Uh, and I think that's going to work uh, to, to the advantage of the Democrats in this election. Okay, Michael Diamond, last prediction to you. Well, I mean, first, you know, I think we all have to be thankful to the candidates from all parties and the independents who are putting their names forward and it's uh, admirable, and we all owe them a debt of uh, gratitude. Uh, you know, what, what I'll predict is uh, that you know, uh, elections are certainly a bit unpredictable, but things uh, certainly look good for the uh, current government uh, right now, but it will come down to getting out the vote. So I think it's important that all volunteers and all parties are active at that. So we have high voter turnout, what would be uh, good for all of us. But my, my prediction, and there is one, is that there are seats at play in traditional areas that you've seen the Conservatives not do well in northern Ontario, Windsor Essex, for example, uh, uh, into London that are certainly at play at this time. So the map has changed from previous elections, which makes uh, predicting the actual uh, seat counts very tricky. Okay, well, uh, again, people, we'll be here late on Thursday. You can hear the music you like and get the election updates. And we'll be back with this recovering politician panel to parse the results a week today. And thank you so much, Charles Sousa, Howard Hampton, and Michael Diamond. Get out and vote. Thank you. Thank you. Good message. And we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about those backlogs at the airport and what happened just before news time, which is that the COVID restrictions that a lot of people are blaming for the backlogs are now extended. So uh, we'll have the scoop on that and what your journey might be like when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. One day after multiple stakeholders demanded an end to COVID protocols at Pearson Airport, the government has extended them until June the 30th. It's actually the Public Health Agency of Canada. And this, despite the epic delays and backlogs, which have the ministry and the industry pointing fingers at each other, trying to pinpoint the cause of the problem. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. So many of us are itching to get back to traveling. And then you see the pictures out of the airport. You see reports that say there's no end in sight to this. And it's, it's really a letdown. So now I am joined by Trevor McPherson, who's the president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, John Graddock, a faculty lecturer at McGill University and a former executive with Air Canada, and Zanetta Rochemont of Cruise Holidays of Clarkson. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you Libby, for having us. Well, Trevor, uh, yesterday, you, along with the mayor of Mississauga, were calling to an end to the COVID protocols. A lot of people, including some doctors, have said it's time for them to end. And the response from the transport minister was that they're, they're not the problem. Um, so how did you get to this as the problem? And, and what do you say to Omar Al-Gabra? Well, I, I certainly appreciate the position that the minister is in um, dealing with this issue, and, and certainly staffing um, has has a good deal uh, to contribute to, to the problem. Um, but it's not the the only issue. And what we're hearing from um, our friends at the airport at Pearson is that it's also about um, duplicative uh, screening uh, procedures. Um, the continuation of random testing at the airport on site um, when there probably are other options um, close to the airport, if not on site, um, as well as is creating, um, you know, additional uh, pressures on the system. Uh, everybody's dealing with staffing issues uh, right across industry. That's uh, that's not not a surprise. And, and we're <coughs> glad that the federal government is, is taking action uh, in terms of bringing on some additional CATSA um, screening officers. Um, but we, we do feel that um, the random testing at the airport, uh, as well as some of the duplication in procedures, uh, are a couple of, of things that can be addressed right away um, to deal with the current um, the current backlog of passengers. It's really affecting, you know, it's not only affecting Canadians that are looking to to travel abroad and 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 their return, but but also the number of our business members that are doing business in in other markets and their customers expect um, that their their folks will arrive for their meetings, et cetera, uh, on time, or maybe it's servicing a, a product or what have you. And that's having a, a real impact on, on our um, on our businesses here. And then the other part of it, too, is the ongoing issue um, related to the reputation that, that we're um, putting out there to potential investors. Uh, you know, I was just reading a story about a woman who was late to her own wedding party because of a a 24-hour delay. I mean, that's really, really, that's pretty bad. Um, John Graddock, uh, you know, the last time we spoke, and this is according, again, to the minister's numbers, uh, you know, we have shortage, a a shortage of labor, but the the staffing levels were at 90% and the passenger load was only at 70%. Well, you know, I think that what's happening in these days is that, you know, we're, we're basically put too much traffic into the airport uh, by the carriers, and, and they're not recognizing that there is a staffing issue at the airport. I think that, you know, as much as we have those 400 agents that are currently in training by CATSA, it's important to understand that this training is not going to be an instantaneous fix to the problems we're having at Pearson or any other airport in Canada. You know, I want to make sure that those people coming out of the CATSA training program are not rushed through training just to get warm bodies at the airport. I think, you know, we need to make sure that these people are doing a great job of training. It's going to take time to get these people through CATSA training. 
and we want to make sure that they do the job they're supposed to be doing when they get to the airport. I think the issue is still the, air, the airlines are just throwing too much capacity at the airport without recognizing that there are constraints at the airport, both in terms of staffing as well as procedures. And these procedures aren't new. Now, we've been doing this protocol testing and these, and these things for, for months. And it's not something that, you know, as anybody has any, as ever, as ever, nobody's looked at having these processes change. So they're a new reality. So the capacity at the airport has come down. And the, air, the airlines are just throwing more and more seats and more and more passengers at a problem. And it's going to get worse. Zanetta Rochmo, is is that how you see it? You're in the cruise business. People often have to fly to their cruises, and if they uh, don't get there on time, that's a big problem. Uh, it absolutely is, Libby. And um, yes, so on our end, what we have been constantly advising our clients is to please fly to your cruise destination port a day early, give yourself enough time because, uh, you know, stressing over whether or not you're going to make it on the cruise ship, um, you know, is not the way to start a vacation. So whatever the reason is, you know, at Pearson, it, it, it is all over the world. It's a global issue. In Europe, we hear and we learn of flight changes constantly. I mean, we, we had an instance where a client was supposed to uh, end in Barcelona where they were going to embark on a ship. And when they got to London for their connecting flight, well, guess what? Uh, the airline has canceled that flight. And if our client was supposed to get on that ship on that particular day, they were not going to make it. So um, arrive there in good time, fly a day or two early, make sure you book a sufficient time between connecting flights, because these problems are current. They are, you know, they are everywhere. They're not just here. It starts in Pearson, but, you know, you can get caught in, in that kind of situation in Europe or elsewhere in the world. Okay, let's take a call from Jeff in Port Perry. Hi, Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to echo a little bit of what I've heard. Um, there's definitely a lot of duplication in the, the number of times we're asked to show our passport and do security checks. Um, what I'm not finding is that the COVID protocols are not a hindrance to me as a traveler at all. Where I find the roadblocks are, first of all, the, the issue of canceling flights at the last minute. We just came back from Honduras. And we had to rebook our flight three times wow. because the airlines kept canceling. It was insane, and it took us an extra day to get home. But the other things that were very confusing and, and took a lot of time, one was trying to go through to get to the customs officer themselves. We go through those lines, and you get to those um, kiosk machines where you, yep. you scan your passport. Well, we followed all the lines, and then when you get to the very end, instead of having your line go directly to a bank of machines, all the lines converge, and suddenly you have five or six different lines coming to the same point, trying to use the same lines. And that was where a huge roadblock was. And then the last one that's always inherent with Toronto is how long it takes to get your luggage. Oh, so yeah. Coming home, it's like an hour-long process, so there's some... Inherent problems there that I don't think are really related to COVID. I think it's just poor management, poor planning. Um, yeah, I would have to agree with you, especially on the uh, issue of of the baggage. So again, uh, Trevor, uh, who's who's is it? Is it a fault of the airlines just uh, trying to pack in too many passengers for capacity, or uh, and and do you? Do you agree with what the transport minister has been saying? Well, I, I think that, you know, everybody has a part to play in this. I don't think it's about pointing a finger at one one government entity or, or an airline or, or the airports. I think everybody should, should look at their own processes and, and kind of look at where things can be improved. I mean, we see today um, on the business traveler side primarily um, the nexus uh, weights right now on the Canadian side are upwards of almost 300,000 applications that, that are backlogged right now. Um, the U.S. opened their um, physical offices on April 19th, and we are yet to do so ourselves, and we're still 
Um, our CBSA officials are, are still in contact um, with U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to, to work out the, um, the date of, of an opening on the Canadian side. So that's just one example. Um, you know, we talk about um, going into the Customs Hall. Last week, um, the airport reported that 7,000 travellers um, waited longer than 90 minutes on airplanes um, after they touched down and before entering the Customs Hall. Yep. So um, obviously the, there's a significant demand there. I'm not discounting that. Um, but uh, I think that um, certainly what, what we're hearing um, from the airport and from businesses is that they're experiencing uh, a number of what they see as uh, dupl- duplicative um, checks, um, COVID or, or not related. And, and I think we all need to kind of look at that process, look at it quickly and see what can be adjusted quickly. Yes, there will be uh, staffing issues that do take um, longer time to resolve. And of course, we all want um, those personnel um, adequately trained um, because certainly the, the safety of air travel is, is of foremost concern, as is, is uh, public health itself. But I think we're seeing that when we look at our peer um, jurisdictions and peer airports, yes, they're experiencing um, some delays as well. But um, certainly on the, on the COVID protocol side of things, and other screening checks, I think there's room for improvement. Well, they just uh, announced that the COVID protocols are being extended. What's your reaction to that? You know, it's it's disappointing. Um, I think we we should still um, you know voice voice our concern about this, um, and uh, and we need to, as the minister has said, um, find that balance. And I don't think we've reached it yet in terms of protection of public health and an efficient um, air travel uh, system to support our economy that um, is just coming out of, obviously, a very, very difficult uh, more than two years. And uh, our businesses, um, really, I mean, if you look at at the experience throughout COVID, it's been uncertainty that's been the enemy uh, of the business community in all of this. And, you know, we add additional uncertainty um, when it comes to um, them getting back to their business travel and and seeing the customers they need to see, albeit at, at much reduced levels from where they were in 2019. Zanetta, what's the impact on your business? I mean, the cruise business is just coming back. <laughs> it is, and it, it is actually coming back with a vengeance, Libby. Um, that, that could be one of the problems that is, you know, causing additional problems at the airports because, more and more people are traveling right now. Uh, we just work very hard to, you know, to, to prepare our clients for what's ahead and uh, give themselves enough time. Um, and, and also, we are trying to educate everyone that, you know, in a case where, you, where the flight bookings are, are done through the cruise line, it, it is not a guarantee that the cruise line will actually fly you to the port. They are not the ones that are controlling the flights. If flights have been canceled, they will help and do everything they can to get you there. But it's not a given. So, again, I'm a strong advocate of, you know, booking flights, arrive at the destination a couple of days early, uh, you know, distress from the flying experience and get in the right mood to enjoy the vacation because otherwise it's just not worth it. And it's, if uh, you if you miss your embarkation, is that it, your SOL? In most cases, it is. If it is a river cruise, then, yes, it's easy to get to the next embarkation point. But if it's an ocean cruise and there are uh, days at sea right after embarkation, oftentimes it's not possible to get there. Uh, Luckily, we haven't had to deal with issues of this sort. But in most cases, yes, that that will be the end, depending on the destination, of course. Okay, we've got to take another break. Uh, people, if you want to share some stories about traveling or how you feel about this, if you were hoping to travel this summer, I, I know I am and uh, not happy looking at those pictures, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And we'll be right back with more on this after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. We are talking about the delays at the airport and uh, people be patient. If you want to have your say on the telephone, the numbers are 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And here's an eye-popping number. In April 2019, the number of international flights that were delayed on arrival at Pearson was eight. The number in April of this year, 2,204. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. John? Huh. Well, not surprising. I think that, you know, we talked about the base number back in 2019. There were no protocols. There was no Arrive Canada app. There was no congestion. Um, and now, yeah, we, we have a lot more practices in place to have people go through. And, you know, the Arrive Can app, the airport testing, the random testing, all of those things basically are additional activities that have taken place since COVID-19. And, you know, for the most part, they're here to stay. Uh, you know, the Arrive Can app has been advised, you know, the government has basically said it will be part of our future protocols when it comes to international travel. They have to make some improvements to it. Right now, it's web-based for Toronto and Vancouver. They have to make it mobile. They've taken that initiative. But, you know, it, it really is a function of the, the volume of passengers and the volume of flights, basically not recognizing the capability and the infrastructure capacity at the airports. You know, and I just have to look at Amsterdam Airport over the last three or four days. And Schiphol basically has, you know, the same thing and has got people standing out in the in, in the in the in the uh, taxiways or in the um, in the arrivals halls. It's unbelievable. But the question now you have to ask yourself is that the airlines are asking Schiphol to basically allow us to fly to regional airports rather than fly to Amsterdam Airport. That that might be a solution we want to see in Canada. Do you have a sense of how much overcapacity things are? I don't know. I think I think that, you know, every night when I look at Toronto Airport, looking at the departure delays out of Pearson, you know, after about 9 p.m., every single one of those flights has been delayed by at least two hours. And it's not just Air Canada or Lot Polish or WestJet. Everybody's been delayed. So there seems to be a lot more, you know, airplanes being deployed at the airport than what the airport can handle. And the numbers to me are somewhere in the range of 10 or 15 percent. If I look at what our friends south of the border have done, JetBlue, American, Delta, United, they've all cut back. They've all canceled 10% of their flights. And that's because they know there's a staffing situation. There's a shortage of capacity. And they're taking proactive action to reduce the flight so you don't get delays. Right. And you make less money, I guess. Well, you make less money, but I think you're, you're not, you're not going to be pissing off a bunch of customers. Hmm. Good point. Let's hear from Bill in Oakville. Hi, Bill. Hello. Uh, uh, just a comment uh, about uh, holdups, but uh, I don't know this. Maybe you covered it already, but do you still have to get a COVID test, like the forty dollar one, uh, to to get you know to get it on an airplane to go to the U.S.? I know. I know. Canada I believe so. Yeah. Uh, am I right or am I wrong, John? <clears throat> you need to be doubly vaccinated. Um, and uh, you basically have to wear a mask. You know, the, the U.S. still requires, it's a U.S. government regulation that requires a COVID test, not a Canadian government regulation. Well, I know that. Uh, any idea what, I mean, this is ridiculous, I think, too. Uh, uh, if, you, if you have proof of vaccination, you still got to pony up the $40 and make appointments before you can even go out of the airport. Well, you know what? I Do you know in this wave how many people who are double, triple, and even quadruple vaccinated that got sick, so are getting sick? I know people every week, so that's, uh-huh. uh, that's, that's another wrinkle here, Bill. Thanks for your call. I mean, it's true. A lot of us, you know, are we're feeling like it's over, but it's not really exactly over. And I think that's where the government, you know, the government basically is saying, you know, they sent it to June 30th this morning. And I think the jury's still out. You know, is it something that we can look at? And they're giving it another month to see, you know, is it safe to, in fact, remove some of the restrictions and then convince the U.S. government 
to remove some of those restrictions as well. So you're right. It's not over. Yeah, I, I don't know that we ever uh, convinced the U.S. government of anything, but that's another story. Zanetta, what are the rules for getting on a cruise ship? Do you need a test? Yes, you do. Yes, you do, Libby. And um, we actually advise our clients to um, get a PCR test or an antigen test before they leave their home uh, and present uh, at the embarkation with a negative test. Uh, with the proof of negative test because of scenarios that you were just explaining that, you know, maybe possibly, you know, you catch the virus while you're traveling. Uh, and if you don't have a proof of a negative test before you get to the ship, the conditions, um, you know, and, and, and the next steps, what will, what you will have to do to get on board the ship may vary. Uh, so absolutely, uh, uh, ocean ships in particular require you to, to arrive with a, a negative PCR test. River cruise companies are, are governed really by the rules and regulations of the countries that they're visiting. So if in that particular country, let's in Germany, uh, let's say in Germany, you are not uh, required to show COVID, uh, negative COVID test then you don't need to show proof to get on board the ship. But ocean cruises, yes, definitely you do need to show uh, to show negative tests. Okay, we, or antigen. we are heading to the noon hour. John Graddock, do you expect any of the things that have been announced to clear the backlog, things to get better, or is this, is this our future summer travel? Well, it's going to be the future for summer 22. I think that we haven't seen the peak demand show up just yet. I think it's going to get a bit busier between now and beginning of July. I think what we see happening at the airports in Canada and around the world uh, is just a poor taste of uh, either, you know, even more congestion issues. So uh, my my advice is basically arrive early, maybe even a couple of days early, as, as your guest said about cruise ships, but uh, it's not going to get any better shortly. Trevor McPherson, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, I, I think, obviously, this is going to be an issue that's, that's with us for a while. We would like to see it not to the extent that it is right now, obviously. Um, and, you know, we mentioned the ArriveCan app. You can do a, a, a Customs and, and Border Services declaration on the web version of ArriveCan, and I know that they're working on having that built into the to the app itself. We need these things to be really expedited um, to help improve the situation. It's not going to be one one fix. It's going to be a number of, of things that help alleviate the, the current crisis. Okay. Thank you so much to our guests, Zanetta Rochemont, John Graddock, and Trevor McPherson. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.